0: ton of qu- it's one of those books where i highlighted so many things that
1: oh um, man
0: that it's that's always be, tough it's gonna be needle in a haystack even among my highlights to find the exact stuff that I'm even reading.
1: among your highlights magazine
0: highlights for children i made a highlights for children joke over vacation and susanna didn't understand <laughs> <laughs> like i think she got the joke she just didn't understand why i had made a highlights <laughs> for children joke <laughs>
1: That's a sign of a healthy marriage, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, I I don't know why you did that.
0: But I respect your right to do it.
1: <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig.
0: My name is Andrew. The,
1: the thing that has been my jam lately has been being very aware of, Laura will say a word. I will mishear it and say what? did you just say whatever Mm -hmm. and she'll go why would i say that Mm -hmm. and my response is that's why i asked
0: (laughs) (laughs) cool is this like a post-wedding thing is that how your relationship is changing is you just like mishear each other more often or no it's been going off for
1: a good long time (laughs) okay cool (laughs) i think uh yeah post-wedding it's not that different
0: It's like the same.
1: We were in the paper. It was really weird. I don't know why
0: we... You were in the paper. I'm not... Listen, I'm (laughs) glad that you guys were in the paper. (laughs) But, like, Slow News Day? Come on.
1: (laughs) It had the weird effect of, like... So, Laura works at a theater where her job is to talk with donors and stuff. And she was meeting someone for the first... She was meeting someone's husband for the first time. Mm. And he had... When he was, like, asking about what I do, all of the answers she was giving sounded oddly familiar. Okay. And then he had to be like, why do I know this already? Wait, Sunday's the day I read the paper cover to cover. I've read about your whole life story already. This is wow. weird.
0: Cover to cover? How many strangers' weddings has that dude read about? <laughs> Probably is too question. many. That's my question. That's a Local good. Philadelphia socialite, Laura Van Tassel. <laughs>
1: I would love to, like, find someone's scrapbook where all they did was just clip out Vow's columns and paste them mm-hmm. to backing and just hold on to them. I think that's the kind of, them. you don't
0: typically put that in an album. I think you usually paste that all over the walls of a room for someone to, like, find and be horrified <laughs> about after you die.
1: With, like, thumbtacks and string connecting
0: yeah, all Yeah, right. People. And, like, a big post-it note with just question marks on it. <laughs>
1: So, usually we talk about books. Most of the time we get there. And this week's hopefully going to be no different. Hopefully. So, Andrew, you finally finished a book that we've been promising for like a couple of weeks now. And people have been
0: pretty excited. What book a bit. was it? It's not a Moby Dick level thing, but no, yeah, it, no. did, it did take a bit. Um, this is 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami. Sure. Um, and it is the name of the book I discovered in my research is a pun on the way that nine is pronounced in Japanese. Oh, OK. Yeah. It, so it's it's pronounced Q, I think. The number nine is so that's not confusing at all. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a play on words. It's very clever.
1: OK. And um,
0: And we've we've read Murakami. Well, the podcast has read Murakami ever before. Um, I think when I was on my honeymoon like a year and a half ago, our friend Chris came on and read, um, what was it, Colorless Somebody and his something-something.
1: Oh, man. Let me pull it up here. Uh, It is the Colorless Sukuru Tazaki and His Years of Pilgrimage.
0: There you go. And I believe that was his most recent novel. I think that was 2013. And 1Q84 is the novel before that. So it was... Um, published in Japan in three volumes. The first two, I think in 2009 and then the third one in 2010. And then all three volumes were translated into English. Volumes one and two by this guy, Jay Rubin, and volume three by Philip Gabriel. Um, I'm not sure why they had two translators do it unless it was like a timing thing or just like a multitasking Thing.
1: I imagine it was that because yeah. from what was I was reading the published the, in
0: English in twenty eleven, just sorry. to get that out. No, yeah. Uh
1: from what I was reading, he published the first two volumes and then a year later went back and did the third. Like it right. sounded like yes. he was surprised that he was not done with the book, which I want to maybe return to later if, if you have any impressions about I that. yeah,
0: I definitely do. <laughs> uh
1: I think um Knopf was the Knopf, Knopf, was the publisher in America that had the rights to it. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being a big event. Like I was not familiar with Murakami and I still have not read a Murakami. Um, But when that book came out, I remember like people were very excited. It has a very elaborate cover. I think I have a copy on my shelf. Like it was the literary event of the year Mm -hmm. in America
0: well, you you went back and um, listened to part of that Murakami episode. Yes. My understanding is that the audio is is not our best. So no. if you don't want to go back and listen to it, like that's fine. I'm, I'm
1: th- <laughs> I throw no shade at Chris. We we did not step up our guest microphone game at that point. He sounds like he's in sort of a concert hall, probably mm-hmm. a bedroom. Okay, I sound like a computer's trying to eat me. I don't know what was wrong with my microphone that day. Okay, uh, it does not match our current quality. Uh, but I do have a couple like tidbits on Murakami that from that episode. So that if you like want to go listen to it, like, I'll, you know, listener beware. But yeah,
0: listener beware. It sounds like a cell phone with a bad <laughs> signal falling down the stairs.
1: <laughs> but here's some stuff that you might have learned from that episode uh, Murakami was born in 1949 during the post World War II uh, baby boom of Japan, which I don't necessarily knew think I know was a thing but there's I'm whole, not
0: sure sh- yeah. yeah I know like US baby boomers are a big thing but presumably it it also was it I don't know like the impulse like all these all of our men just died let's let's we better get back on that right
1: yeah, there's a there's a whole Wikipedia article about it, and it's separated into United States, Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, European, and South Pacific trends. So, <laughs> there's, it certainly happened in other countries. In a Western Wikipedia article, it there's less data on it. Sure. Um, and he they, he was born to a pair of uh, literary professors. I think his parents had some other jobs, but he was uh, they both taught literature, and I think developed a you know. Engendered. I don't know what verb I want.
0: I'm not going to help you. I'm just going to let you. Please
1: don't help me figure it out. Um,
0: he. This developed, you learn. You learn more this way.
1: <laughs> he developed an interest in literature from them. Maybe who knows. He didn't really set out to be a novelist. He studied cinema and theater uh, at university. And he didn't.
0: He didn't write anything at all until he was like 29. So if yes. you happen to be getting to the end of your 20s and you feel like, oh well, my. My time, sowing my wild oats is over. I can't pick up any new skills from now on. Like, don't don't worry about oh, it. Oh,
1: thanks for that, Andrew. That's really mm-hmm. helpful. It's good to know. Yeah. He worked in a jazz club during his 20s. He actually ran a jazz club called Peter Cat for sounds a while. Sounds like
0: a euphemism.
1: No, it wasn't.
0: He, I know it wasn't, <laughs> but like, oh, yeah, he runs a jazz club. That sounds, it sounds like something else. I don't know what else, but something else.
1: <laughs> I've seen The Wire. I know that everything's a front for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... He started writing in his 30s, as you say, because he was at a baseball game. Uh huh. And he saw an American player, Dave Hilton. Okay. Up at bat. And I think he hit a home run. He or hit he, a double. He hit a double. He wasn't even, <laughs> even like <better>. that good. <laughs> and that somehow inspired him to write his first book.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure – like, surely there are some cultural things at play. The implication, I think, is, like, if an American baseball player in Japan can hit a double, then I can write a book. Yeah. The I'm ex- not sure, like, how that works exactly, but that's that was what I picked up from that little The exact factoid.
1: quote from Murakami's website is uh, – I felt that I possessed neither the talent nor the qualifications to be a good novelist, so I never felt like penning a novel. Rather than writing an inconsequential novel, I would rather, I would much rather be on the side of reading good novels. But that April afternoon, as I was watching the game at the stadium, I had the sudden notion that, quote, perhaps I too can write a novel.
0: Oh, okay. So, <laughs> all right. I'm revising my original interpretation a little bit. Like this guy who's not that good at baseball is still a professional baseball player. Correct. So why could I not be a novelist I just think because I don't think I'm going to be that good?
1: That might be it actually. Wow, it's uh, like a
0: <laughs> I don't mean to put an anthem for mediocrity right there like <laughs> I don't mean to put Dave
1: Hilton on blast uh but he played 4 seasons for the San Diego Padres before moving out to Japan and his MLB stats put him really close to the Mendoza line which Andrew don't know I don't, you, know, you I don't have know, no idea
0: what that is. His
1: batting average is pretty close to 200 which means he gets a hit one out of every five chances.
0: Not, That's that, not great. that great, right? No, like isn't like 300 sort of averagey?
1: No, 3 if you're over 300 you might be hitting towards the Hall of Fame. So it's in oh, between okay. 200 and 300 is so where, like basically where everyone is. Okay. Yeah. Uh I just like also that someone named Mendoza, they named the line after him cuz he was so bad. <laughs> Uh so that's that's why Murakami went into writing, I suppose. It's just it's just
0: really it's heartening for me to see mediocrity rewarded. Yes. I guess. It gives me hope. Like it's I think my natural skill plus my tendency to like procrastinate and mm. not mm-hmm. try hard all the time <laughs> pretty much evens out to mediocre. So. <laughs> Uh, His first
1: novel was something called Hear the Wind Sing. His next novel is called Pinball 1973, which is the best titles of a book I've ever heard. It's a good book. He really broke through with Norwegian Wood. And I bring that up in particular because a lot of his work has, you know, it's a Beatles song that he's referencing directly. And there's a lot of Western music and writing and culture just infused in his stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if, I I imagine we'll talk about that a little bit It
0: definitely, yeah, it comes through in 1Q84. I don't think we'll end up talking about it as much as we talk about some other stuff, but um, it's worth mentioning up top that it's an intentional play on the Orwell book, 1984. Um, Sure. It's not, this is not some kind of thematic clone of it, but the book 1984 and Orwell and like the concept of Big Brother do come up a few times. Okay. uh, Usually in the context of the novels like shadowy religion reaching out and and (laughs) okay doing stuff to other people so cool (laughs) there you go um what else about murakami i had some other things
1: when we talk about this book we won't really be talking about first person narrative i don't think right Right. that's that's
0: something he's known for but in this book he does third person and some reviewers actually dinged him on it yeah I'm not 100% sure why, unless it's just like, they don't want to be surprised. They, they wanted to know what they were getting into with the Murakami book, and they didn't.
1: Yeah, he has been uh, aligned with a genre of Japanese literature called the I-Novel, and I, I would not, uh, I don't want to misstep by attempting to pronounce Japanese, so I'll just say the translated, <laughs> the I-Novel. Okay. Uh, and it's a confessional type of literature that came about at the turn of the 20th century that... Ushers in naturalism and, you know, you're trying to depict real things that maybe uh, depict things as they really happen and maybe are based on something in the author's experience. I personally think it's interesting based on what I know from Murakami's writing that is sort of dreamlike and magical realist and kind of eclectic that it still draws a tradition from this genre based in naturalism.
0: Well, he's, um, he's known for um, combining realistic elements with fantastical elements, which definitely comes up in 1Q84. Um, I think we'll talk about that quite a bit. But, okay. um Yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to bring up is just, he is sort of unique among Japanese authors for being very like steeped in Western influences and very engaged with uh, Western literature. So he's very active in overseeing like the translation of his work into English and other languages. Um, one of his books, I, for, I forget which one, um, at this at this point in time, but <laughs> one of his books was translated into German from the English translation instead oh of from the original Japanese originally, and like he oversaw that and was cool with it. Huh. Um, he pushes for sort of some something that's a little looser and more interpretive rather than a literal translation.
1: That seems helpful.
0: But yeah, his stuff's been translated into fifty languages. He himself has translated. Stuff by Salinger and Raymond Carver and other authors into Japanese from English. And uh I guess Japan's literary establishment sort of looks down on him a little bit for being so westernized, but I think it has a lot to do with his with his international success.
1: And and his influences. Like he regularly name checks Tolstoy and Dostoevsky as some of his uh big influences. And I, I think he he simultaneously is doing this thing where he's breaking from tradition regularly, but also he's kind of hailed as the laureate writer of Japan, based on people outside of Japan and what mm-hmm. they what they read. Right. Uh, he's all his name is always in the conversation for the Nobel in the last like ten or fifteen years, and when he's been asked about it, he's like, "Well, that'd be great, but if we, if you get that prize, that means you're done." So I don't. <laughs> he's not in a rush to get it. Sure. Um, and they don't release. I did not know this. They don't release the nominations for the Nobels until like fifty years after the award has been given. So, oh man, there's a chance that he's been on the shortlist multiple times, but we just don't know.
0: Ooh, Secret. Ooh, secrets. Um, he he has won awards. He won a World Fantasy Award and a Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award in 2006. Cool. Um. And there's there's a whole list of other stuff that other smaller stuff that he's won. But, um, yeah, no no, no Nobel yet.
1: Maybe one day you'll see a guy hit a home run and that'll be the day that you get your Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about this book, Andrew. It's a big old book,
0: right? It's It's a big old book. It was Amazon listed at eleven hundred pages. I think pages are not a super useful way to talk about the length of a book because it just means a different (laughs) thing. in every book i've read but i the the time it took was comparable to when i read it so okay it feels like definitely north of a thousand pages yeah that's kind of what i was feeling
1: when i was trucking through les mis there's a similar yeah similar and I, I
0: i like i do like reading these long books it, it's hard to do them for the show because you it's just not reading them in a normal two weeks when you're also trying to do a bunch of normal stuff it just is not gonna work, but I like it because, you know, big big stuff does give you a lot of big themes to talk about a lot of the time. And then if you bust out like Jane Eyre or some like mid length novel after, it feels <laughs> super breezy, yeah, and easy. Cover girl.
1: It, yep. Maybe it's Maybelline.
0: <laughs>
1: no sponsors other, this ma- week. What but... other
0: makeup jingles can you say?
1: Uh, what's the maybe she's born with it. Oh no, maybe it's. Maybelline. No, you already did that
0: one. That's <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's Maybelline. So we talked about Murakami's blending of fantasy and reality, and I will say the first. So this was it was published in three volumes. I think the first two volumes are more tied to reality, and I also liked them more. I don't know how much of that is that. I suspect a little bit of it is the translator. I've got okay. a couple key translations that i'll bring up later from book three that are just a little weird
1: and as you said it's a different guy right
0: yeah it's okay. it's a different guy but but it also gets a little floatier and more unmoored in the sure. in the back third or so of it um yeah the first the first well the whole book basically is brought to you in the viewpoint of two different characters you get one other point of view character and then little jaunts into other people's heads occasionally but the bulk of the book is told in alternating chapters from the point of view of these two people great um so there's Tengo, who is a math teacher and an aspiring novelist uh he shows promise but he still hasn't caught his big break uh he enters literary contests a lot of the time and he's he's always a finalist but he rarely he's never like he never wins the prize he doesn't, so he's just, he
1: doesn't win the cash. Tango yeah. never gets the cash.
0: No, Tango doesn't get the cash. And he, yeah, his uh, his editor Komatsu, sees something in him, but like the talent is there, but he hasn't, he basically hasn't decided what he wants to write about yet. Like, so he his hasn't found, skill, he hasn't found yeah. the idea okay. that his will really be. His skill is top compelling. notch, but yeah. he, he doesn't have a muse yet. Yeah, 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 okay. basically. Um, and then the other person, now the book says phonetically, Aomame. <laughs> okay, I'm probably gonna say like aomame or something just because that's how I pronounced it in my head up until I read the phonetic thing in the book. Okay, and it's also similar to edamame, <laughs> which is
1: easier to say. Which is
0: easier to say, but yeah, it's a it means sweet pea. I think it's an actual. It's a. It's a.
1: Okay, so that might it's be a related. Name
0: that means sweet pea. Yeah. No. It it definitely is related. Okay. Um, I'm not sure which pronunciation is is more correct but I will probably default to the one that is that easier you for me say. to say. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um she's like a gym instructor who has teamed up with a wealthy dowager to uh, help victims of sexual abuse. Now, that all sounds on the up and up, but twist, sometimes for the for the more severe cases, the solution is to murder the abuser. Oh Okay. Yeah, with a with an ice pick like tool of Aomame's own design that she pokes into the back of your neck and she makes sure that there's no blood and it just looks like you died of natural causes. Whoa. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um so the book begins this is the first <sighs> Where do I want to start here? So
1: it's set in 1984. I just wanted to double check that. It's set in the
0: year that. 1984. So one thing I really liked about Murakami's writing is he has this way and this is this is the strength of his realistic writing. He has is he has a way of making like a traffic jam or someone preparing food or something. He has he has a way of making it like really interesting. He writes about it in such detail that you can really see yourself there sure sure um and he also he also will bust out a really good metaphor every now and again that really just um getting... you know when you read a really good metaphor and you're like man that's a good metaphor
1: uh, yeah no i i get that sometimes
0: uh komatsu smiled it was the kind of smile he might have found way in the back of a normally unopened drawer
1: is <laughs> <laughs> a junk drawer smile
0: yeah Oh Basically. man! That's great. Yeah, it's real good. Okay. Um. So okay, let's let's talk about metaphors while also forwarding our discussion of the plot of the book. So this uh, it opens with <laughs> Aomame. She's on this expressway on her way, actually, to kill somebody. Great. And she's caught in traffic, and she's not going to make it on time. And so this mysterious cab driver dude tells her that there's a shortcut there's like an emergency stairway down to the street level that she can take yeah to get off the expressway mm-hmm. and she's like okay and then while she's while she's climbing down she gets sort of disoriented momentarily mm-hmm. and when she comes out at the bottom she walks past this policeman who is wearing like the semi-automatic pistol and she does not remember she she knows that policemen wear like much lower tech guns than this just because there are not that many guns in japan and so she knows that something is off okay um so she goes about her business for a while and then eventually start like she she realizes something's not right and so she's reading through all these newspapers and stuff and she finds this big story that she would not possibly have missed about a shootout between some members of like a A cult or religious sect and the police that happened two or three years ago and as a result of this shootout the police now wear like heavier firearms
1: oh okay okay and so
0: i don't i'm not this is toward the beginning of the book and i have been reading this for something close to a month so i don't remember the exact logical leap but she concludes (laughs) that she must be in another like timeline or another world because oh. and she and she traces oh. it she traces it back to being disoriented and walking down that stairway. Okay, and so she decides I'm going to refer to this reality that's almost my reality as one Q eighty four because it's not one nine eighty four. Right, and she's she's saying either I'm funny or the world's funny. I don't know which. The bottle and lid don't fit. It could be the bottle's fault or the lid's fault. In either case, there's no denying that the fit is bad. Oh,
1: I have. So ex- there's ex- another. I have that experience with Tupperware all the time. <laughs> Where like I get, cause I will lose Tupperware or leave it at the office or just like eat it. I don't know what I'm doing, but
0: Tupperware is the socks of, <laughs> of dinner Dinnerware,
1: of dinnerware.
0: <laughs> because you always like lose one or the other.
1: Yeah. And then you're, I was putting a lid on some Tupperware the other day and it wasn't fitting, but it looked like it should. Mm-hmm. And it was just cause I had like lost half a, tupperware somewhere i'm sorry and i was just your, mixing it together your
0: tupperware problems
1: i need to have a tupperware party and get my tupperware right
0: it's i is that what tupperware parties are i don't know that that's what they are
1: well is it just when you sit around and burp all your tupperware together you, s- you
0: sit around and like everybody brings all their tupperware and you try and find lids for your orphaned bottoms it's and like vice a, versa
1: it's like a key party but for tupperware i, I guess Everyone leaves home with someone else's Tupperware. <laughs> I get...
0: <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah, no, I would. I. This is. This sounds like a much better Tupperware party than what I think they normally are.
1: So she's in another
0: universe. She's in another. She's in like a parallel world. So okay. she's she's in one Q eighty four. Meanwhile, Tango is talking to his editor Komatsu. They've read this draft of the story called Air Chrysalis. And it was written by a 17 year old girl named uh, Fuka Eri, mm-hmm. and it's badly written, but <laughs> okay. the story is really, really compelling. Like they both note that even though like the grammatical problems are completely and totally like endemic and could not be easily smoothed out, the story that the, that is being told is so compelling that you can't not read it all the way
1: to. So that. it's like the flip side of Tango's problem.
0: Right, exactly. And so Komatsu has this idea, you know, why don't you go rewrite write Air Chrysalis and we'll resubmit it and we'll get it published. We'll have some fun, we'll make some money. <laughs> and Tango yeah, Ko- can Komatsu's, finally get his cash. Yeah, Komatsu's kind of a kind of a weird dude. I he's pretty he's a little funny, but he's he's sort of an outsider in the world of publishing. And people respect him, but they don't like him that much. Oh, I like that. I like that. And he's always calling Tengo at all hours of the day. And Tengo always knows, like, what a Komatsu ring sounds like. Mm
1: -hmm. Because
0: if it's coming, like, just as someone would be going to bed and it sounds really insistent, it must be Komatsu, (laughs) like, calling to talk about something. Okay. So they decide to do this and they get in touch with Fukaeri and they just want her permission and she says that they're going to need her guardian's permission. His name is Professor Ebisuno. And uh, Tengo goes out with Fuka Eri to Professor Ebisuno's house. And they have this conversation about, about Fuka Eri and her past, where a few things come to light. So, for one, Fuka Eri is dyslexic. Uh, not a lot of people know it, but. She did not even really write this down in the first place. She dictated it to Professor Ebisuno's mm. daughter mm. who wrote it down and then submitted it. Well, actually, I think maybe Professor Ebisuno submitted it because the deal is like he, Professor Ebisuno and Ari's parents used to be friends. Huh. Um. But Fuka Eri's dad went on, like, he was an academic and then he became disillusioned with some things and he went off to, like, start this sort of back to the earth movement. Okay. Where they would just, like, live off the land and, and whatever. And it gradually transformed into this religion. And uh, Fuka Eri ran away, and Professor Ebisuno hadn't been able to contact her parents. He didn't know what had happened to them. And so he, I believe he wants to get this book out there because it's implied that the stuff that happens in it really happened. And he thinks that if he gets the story out there and it gets a lot of press, that it might bring some, it might bring Fugari's parents out of hiding. It might just reveal what happened to them. You know, he's he's trying to figure out what the deal is, basically.
1: It sounds like a mix of like... A vonnegut and a Philip K. Dick story, maybe. Just that there's like an alternate universe. There's this like yeah, mystical I could, yeah, story. I could definitely see the Philip
0: K. Dickness that, yeah. of this
1: little little man in the high castle going on. It feels <laughs> like. But are these people aware of the alternate universe?
0: Tango and Aomame are both eventually okay because something something else happens. Um, in in the story, Air Chrysalis, there are these two moons, and then eventually, at some point in the story, both Aumame and Tango both see two moons in the real world, and they're not sure if anybody else can see them, so they don't really talk about them to anybody. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, they are they are both eventually aware that stuff stuff is not right, and, and one of not... those
1: moons is Earth Moon, and the other is MQ Un. Like M Q O N.
0: No, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> to get into the thing about the moons, like there's this whole thing about, about Air Chrysalis and the story and the, and the people and the, the people in the story. And it's, it's a little, it's a little weird to explain. Sure. I don't know if I want to get into it this early or if we should just go for broke. Um,
1: well, if there's anything else... I know you really wanted to hit plots in the first third of the book and or first half of the book and then kind of spiral out from there. Is there anything else that we need to know before we really start diving into Air Chrysalis or the ramifications of this alternate universe?
0: Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Tengo and Aomame. Um, yeah, hit me. It is revealed through these alternating chapters a little bit more about their past. So we talked about uh, Murakami and his... um. Writing about like outsiders or loners or people who are kind of isolated. So mm-hmm. Tengo, his mom left at a young age. Like he was, he was younger than two, and he doesn't really remember her. Okay. Um, but he does have this memory that's it's so early that he's not sure if it's real or fake. But he does have this memory of like some guy who's not his father, like feeling up his mom, basically. Oh and he's yeah he's not sure if it's real or not but he he was raised by his father who was a um who was an NH NHK bill collector that's basically the like Japanese television network and ah, okay. subscription is is mandatory <laughs> and you have to pay for it
1: <laughs> is that and true so- in real life
0: Broadcast law, which governs NHK's funding, stipulates that any television equipped to receive NHK is required to pay. Oh, man. The fee is standardized with discounts for office workers and students who commute, as well as a general discount for residents of Okinawa Prefecture. Huh. Um, so, yeah, this is a real thing. So so Tengo's dad basically drags Tengo along with him on all of these. Like It's always happening like on Sundays and on the weekends. He's always dragging Tengo along with him. And he saves a lot of his most difficult clients for the days when he has Tango because a dad dragging around his little kid engenders more sympathy than just a mean old NHK bill collector. Okay,
1: Tango's dad. Uh, okay, I like that. A good but plan. It, does,
0: it has the, the side effect of... I think Tengo goes to school with some kids who are maybe a little better off than he is. Mm. And so they're always going and like doing stuff on the weekends and having vacations and and partying and whatever people do. But he has to go out with his dad (laughs) and collect bills. And eventually the kids kind of realize this. And Tengo is a big kid and he's smart. So they sort of respect him a little, but they don't really... There is a wall that's kind of separating. Yeah,
1: he's isolated. Okay.
0: Um, Aomame's parents are basically cults members or members of a religion like it's the words for religion and cult are kind of used interchangeably in this book in a way that i think tips murakami's hand as to what he thinks about really organized religion <laughs> okay um she is yeah her parents belong to the society of witnesses and she decides she doesn't want to be a part of that and so she leaves home at like 10 or 11 hmm. so she gets out in time to be able to integrate herself into the world more or less, but she's been indoctrinated to the degree that she doesn't, it's it's hard for her to form like easy relationships with people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause she's not quite like socialized in the same way as they are. So she has this friend. They're really close, like through, through high school and college and and afterward, but she marries this guy who beats her and then she eventually commits suicide Mm. and the the Dowager who she works with, her daughter committed suicide, I believe, because of a similar circumstance, okay, and so they are they are brought together and they decide you know we need to we need to do something to help people who are in this this kind of situation, before which involves can, Charlie before Bronson,
1: Bronsoning some abusers,
0: yeah, especially. and, I, and I, it's it's implied. Like we don't see the other things that they do, but it is implied that for less serious cases, they don't just go and kill everybody. Like it would be, <laughs> <laughs> it would maybe be not smart for them to kill everybody who ever hit his hit his wife.
1: Maybe um, just cut some fingers off. Maybe break some bones.
0: But yeah, they are they are not they they do not feel bad about this. Okay? They okay. they feel that they are they are serving justice for people who cannot get it otherwise. Um okay, so that's that's their past. And then also crucially, um I forget it's like maybe a third or halfway through the book, you realize that Tengo and Aomame actually were in the same class in like fourth and fifth grade.
1: I was wondering what their connection was going to be,
0: yeah, and they were both you know they were both kind of quiet, they were both kind of isolated, but one there was this one day where Amame came over and just like grabbed hold of tango's hand, hmm, and it serves kind of as a sexual awakening for both of them, and they both like think about it all the time, even though it's twenty years later,
1: and it's just holding hands there was no heavy it is no it's just petting. it is
0: just holding hands, there's no kind of petting at all, though I don't know is holding hands a kind of petting, I don't know what petting is i don't want it i just imagine whenever somebody says heavy petting it's just imagine like you you're petting somebody like you're literally running your hands through their hair
1: like a like a like like a dog or a cat or
0: something yeah like petting i don't think think i regret bringing up heavy
1: petting i don't think i want to talk about heavy petting with you've
0: got the you've got regret face
1: i've got a real big regret face going on right (laughs)
0: now. <laughs> Your listeners can't see it, but Craig's got regret face.
1: <laughs> so say they were in class together, and they think about each other 20 years later. Yeah,
0: and they, they to this day, have not really fallen in love with anybody
1: in Ooh. particular,
0: like d- deeply and really. Um,
1: Does it feel like the book is is... G- as you were reading it, is it like, well, I wonder when their stories are going to cross. Does it yeah, feel that
0: it's, way? It's, yeah, the whole book there, basically, they start out pretty far apart. And then you discover that they you, – you're wondering, because you are following these two people pretty much exclusively through the first two sections of the book. You're wondering when the stuff in one story is going to intersect with the stuff in the other story. So eventually you start hearing kind of the same terms thrown around like as they discover different aspects of the same stuff and then you find out that they have a direct connection and then th- this is this is where the last third of the book sort of falters for me a little bit so Amame, there's this religion that i, that I talked about that fuga Ari's dad founded saki Sakigake. okay s-a-k-i-g-a-k-e um, so f- yeah, Fuka Arie's dad founded that and then she ran away and nobody's seen her dad who is like, who was the, at least the leader of this, of this religion. Mm-hmm. Um, they remember the religion, the cult that got into the shootout with the police earlier. That was like an offshoot of this religion. So they okay. were of interest to the police for a while, but they were very, they were found to be on the up and up, I guess. <laughs> The police came and they couldn't find any any signs of like radicalization or or weapons or anything. So it comes to light like the dowager finds out that the leader of this religion is abusing young girls, like sexually Mm. abusing them in really in really awful ways. And so it becomes Aomame's job Like, they are trying to get her close to the leader of this religion who has, like, a bunch of muscle problems and stuff. And so they are going to get Aomame in as, like, a physical therapist and she is going to kill him. And then she is going to run away and get, like, plastic surgery and and just live another life somewhere else.
1: Like, they recognize that this is the big game.
0: Yeah, this is a thing that you don't, like, come back from. it's not. You're not murdering some mid-level executive at an oil company. Like, you're... You are murdering the head of a religion, which is described at multiple points throughout the novel as having very long arms.
1: Oh, man. This is the Super Bowl TM of vengeance killing. Right.
0: Exactly. Okay. Okay. (laughs) It's the Doritos Rose Bowl. Who? What?
1: The Tostitos Bowl. The Tostitos
0: Bowl of sexual abuse-related killing.
1: Proudly sponsored by Frito-Lay. Yeah. I would think.
0: <laughs> so she's, she has gotten in. Okay. And, and she has this conversation with the leader and here's where some of the weirder religious slash fantastical elements come up. And I'm going to, I'm going to describe this as best I can. And then I think I want to like break away from straight plot, plot synopsis stuff and just talk sure. about Hit me. other stuff in the book. Um, So there are these beings referred to as the little people.
1: I think I've heard of this. Okay.
0: And they are vaguely sinister, <laughs> but it, like it's, it's one of those, it's, I don't think it's Lovecrafty, but it's kind of a, a Lovecrafty thing where the menace is mostly in what is not described. Like yeah. that you don't get a real solid explanation of who they are, where they come from, what they want.
1: Someone doesn't bust in with an encyclopedia article about them. Part right, of the problem not, is that you don't know what's up.
0: Yeah, you don't like kill a little person and then get a, this deathbed confession that explains all their motivations and stuff. <laughs> okay. Um. So they are they are they have vaguely sinister motives, and they're they work their way into this world through. Man, this is, it's hard to, it's really hard to describe because the book doesn't, the book's not super straightforward about it either. Basically, they make air chrysalises. The book Air Chrysalis is about them. Okay. So they make air chrysalises, which are just like, they pull threads of air out of the, out of the air. Uh Uh-huh. And they make like these big cocoons. Uh Uh-huh. And then inside those cocoons are... It's it's like it's not quite a clone it's more of like an aspect of your personality so you've got yourself and that's the dota uh d o h not the video game mm-hmm. and then there's this like sort of clone or representation of yourself called the maza m a z a and yeah. so and to go back to the two moons like the main moon moon prime is the <laughs> Is the Dota.
1: Moon Classic is moon, the Dota. Moon Classic
0: is the Dota and... New Moon. Clear Moon. <laughs> Crystal Moon. Diet Moon with Lime is the maza. <laughs>
1: and the little people and I guess are the, here the Maza's, to make you want the maza. Well,
0: no, the maza is like a... It's a more permanent conduit for the little people into our world. Essentially. Yeah. And so the little people... They need these the Mazas to like work their will on the world. Um, they also need they need a receiver to like hear the stuff that they're saying, and then the Mazas serve as perceivers who interpret the stuff that is said. I think this is basically how it breaks down. It's really weird.
1: Can I read you a quote from Murakami?
0: Yeah, if it can like shine any light on anything at all that would be it good.
1: is uh from a 2011 new york times magazine article written by sam anderson uh i'll try and link it this week through our social media pages uh he says quote the little people came suddenly he said i don't know who they are i don't know what it means well that's I was obvious <laughs> a, i was a prisoner of the story i had no choice they came and i described it that is my work
0: yeah, that's pretty much what happens. So it's like a hundred percent. So it doesn't sound like he's super clear on it either. No, which... <laughs> I
1: share that quote to say that if we had Murakami on this podcast right now, he would probably give me the same explanation that you. gave.
0: Great. Okay. So, so know that the little people to work their will in this world, whatever it is, and it's to whatever not, end, it's not clear what they want or why. Mm-hmm. Um, they need the they need a receiver and they need perceivers and the implication is that the receiver is sort of highlandery in so far as there are gonna be only one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. oh, okay highlander yes i see what you mean so the
0: the leader of sakigake who is fuka eri's dad is the receiver and fuka eri is this is... The,
1: wait is this the guy that we have to kill is yes. this the super bowl guy y- yes
0: okay um and Fuka Ari in getting this story about the little people and air chrysalises out into the world. Basically, if you know about the little people, they can't really affect you. Oh. Again, okay. not super clearly explained. But like so so the little people, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get air chrysalis off the shelves and they're trying to find a new receiver because the leader's body is sort of falling apart. And it's sure. not clear if his body's falling apart because of the little people or just like what the what the tie is, but basically the leader knows that Aomame is there to kill him, and he wants it.
1: Oh, he doesn't. He doesn't want to be a servant to the little people, right?
0: So it's it's implied that both he and Fuga Eri are fighting back against the little people in these in whatever way that they can figure out. Cool. And that's basically where book two. Ends. I think there's some other stuff that happens, but that's like the big climactic thing. And then from there, from there, it gets more surreal. Mm. Well, once I imagine
1: you start dealing with the little people directly, if if even just talking about them is sending me into like prisons of non-Euclidean geometry. Uh huh. I don't even imagine what would happen to my brain if I saw one. Yeah,
0: and then and then there's like this third point of view character who comes up in the third book who we've seen before, but it's not like he's kind of a cipher. And he his name's Ushikawa, and he's kind of gross looking. <laughs> he's basically a PI for Sakigake. Yeah, and he's he is following all these clues to find out this stuff, and so. In his like he's tracking Tengo and Aomame. He's like he's been hired by the religion to figure out where Aomame is because of course they find out that Leader is coincidentally dead right oh. after their mm. big private massage session. Oh. <laughs> um And so he's retracing their steps and you kind of he his investigation sort of makes the links between a few things more clear okay you need that character yeah, yeah to kind of he's kind of the glue and i don't know basically it takes the entire book for tango and aomame to find each other and then to leave 1q84 into a world that is probably not 1984 like probably not earth prime or earth zero or whatever but Also, not one Q84. Yeah, it's not a world where like a religion and a bunch of little people are trying to track them down and and find them and make them do stuff. So,
1: So let's. Can I ask you a basic structural question? You
0: can. And then I want to talk about criticism of the book that I sort of agree with. And then we can maybe try and take it home. It's. I I really I did enjoy reading this book, especially the first like two thirds or so of it. But it is very long, and once you get to the end, you're like, okay, what was this supposed to be about?
1: <laughs> so, is it's not about dipping in and out of one Q eighty four? Are when characters go into this alternate universe, is that like their experience for the rest of the book?
0: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, at at the at the end you kind of get back to a spot where the boundaries between whatever universes are fluid again. But yeah, once, once characters realize they're in one Q 84 and it's implied that everybody is in it, but just most of the people don't realize
1: it. Oh, uh, you just got to wake up sheeple. Yeah.
0: Wake up sheeple. So once, once the sheeple wake up and realize that there are like two moons in the sky and stuff's going crazy. They are just there. Um, and it becomes Aomame and Tango's goal, I guess, to escape. Okay. Because Amami knows, like, I did go from one world to another once, so I've got to be able to do it get again. Get to another right? one. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. So, yeah, why don't you dive into criticism? Because I kind of want to get get your reactions on what this book might be about at all, if it's about something.
0: Um, so there was one negative review from the AV Club um, from Christian Williams. Now, I do not – he gave the book, like, a D, which I do not agree <laughs> with. I do not. I do not think it's that bad. OK, um, he found it like overlong and repetitive, which I think that it is. You could probably snip a good third of it out and not lose a whole bunch because you do just you reiterate stuff about Tengo and Amame's childhoods over and over again. You reiterate this personal connection that they have over and over again. And the way that the first couple of thirds of the book work, you're sort of expecting them to get together earlier and then have a bunch of stuff happen after that. But you're like 15, 20 pages from the end when they find each other at all after, after like a million near misses. That's
1: crazy. Yeah. So, but uh, it doesn't just hit the end of book two of three and like the plot is done. And then he tacked on a third is that it's not structurally like that. Like, no, it's not, it's not structurally
0: like that. And I think it's, it's again, I think it's partly a translation and just partly that the tone shifts in a way mm. that I wasn't as on board for. Okay. Um, there was somebody writing for the Indian Express who said that the little people were risable rather than menacing, and I agree with that. Like it's it's not clear why we want to get away with them. It's not clear where they come from or what they want. And if you're trying to set up this book. To like if if one of the main things that at least one of the characters wants is to like foil these beings and like get away from them i think you have to be a little clearer about why um i think the worst thing that the little people are said to have done is to just make this farming community into a fanatical sort of religious cult and i think that Murakami does tend to be down on religion in his work. Mm-hmm. So like that that might just be what he's doing.
1: Do you think maybe he could have div- did you need more about the like negative effects of that religious cult or d- or would that have helped cuz if like th- if they were responsible for that and then we also see like that harming a bunch of people that might that could maybe be enough,
0: I think more would have helped. I think earlier would have helped. I think to have a more point of view from inside the religion mm. to make their motivations clearer might have helped, okay, but yeah, I do yeah, I do find the books antagonist such as they are to be underwhelming and maybe not worthy as a driver of all this of all this action.
1: I guess for me it's it's tricky because if you're trying to write this like supernatural, dream reality antagonist, to over-explain it can perhaps make it too real, and, right? And it's and it's a very fine line menacing. to walk. Yeah, and it's something um,
0: we've talked about a whole bunch. Yeah, throughout but, our and maybe hundred it's just, blah, blah episodes.
1: Yeah, because there's some of it in like what what is. There's oh god I'm getting I'm getting whiffs of like Tolkien like what exactly is the evil in that universe what exactly is the evil in like say the dark is rising what is and are the little people in this universe even like technically evil yeah like that's just... that's
0: what's not clear and and the thing that can be unsatisfying about a lot of that YA fantasy stuff is a lot of the time the evil people just want to be evil they're yeah. just they're, they're evil they're just listening to metal all the time right that they're, they're evil, evil. cuz that's what they want to do and uh-huh this is this is something that I bring up all the time in like books and video games and all kinds of stuff like the evil people always just want to transform the entire world into a desolate wasteland like the yeah. evil people don't want to rule over something that's pretty and nice <laughs> for whatever reason. And so that's that's its own kind of dissatisfying but in that you don't even in in this book you don't even quite get this out and out declaration that the little people are evil. Except that something something about them sort of feels wrong. They feel vaguely menacing and, and weird.
1: Well But it's just so, it's
0: all on the whole, it's just like a shade too vague, I think, for me personally.
1: Is it is it a you know, you were we were talking uh earlier in the show about his gift for metaphor. Like, are they a perhaps vaguer than you might like metaphor for something like is there a a a negative idea or energy that they're like that they vibe with in terms of just like are they entropy are they i don't
0: like you could you could just tie it back to the religion thing again like they are you know all throughout history a lot of these a lot of modern religions have started with like some prophet who hears words Mm. from some higher being and so this i guess the little people are like a manifestation of whatever that higher being is sure and they do you know they are driving families apart they are doing some some strange and sinister ish stuff yeah okay um and they're i mean they they're they're driving people to extremism i guess like that that's that's i think as good as i can do as far as like trying to divine what the like what Murakami is trying to comment on if anything okay
1: cuz i'm also now reminded of Stephen King too cuz he has these kind of nebulous evil forces that what in my experience are in there not even so much to justify themselves but as to like put into relief our our baser human impulses right They're like yeah. that's what Stephen King does a lot of and it doesn't sound like that's here because the we're in this alternate universe and all sorts of other stuff is going on. But
0: mm-hmm. okay, um, so I, I guess what I would say to sum up, because I know, I mean, there's there's just a whole bunch of stuff we haven't we haven't been able to get to, and just we were never going to be able to get to all of it. <laughs> um, I I re- as long as it was, I really did enjoy picking it up and reading it more. Like it was never sure. a slog. Except until like the very end, and once you're that far in, then you just you're just to the point where you're like, okay, it's time to. I just need to finish this thing now. Yeah. Um, I think it ends fairly strong. I think a lot of the stuff in the back third of the book's not great. Um, here's a translation thing.
1: Yeah, you wanted to talk about the different vibe in the third part, not just because of the tone. There's of the, there's of just Murakami, some but...
0: weird phrasing. Okay. Um. So there's this character Tom Tamaru who is, uh, uh, he, he used to be in the armed forces and he's just, he's like a professional assassin. Basically he works with the dowager and with Aomame. Sure. Um, and Aomame is telling him something and he is, he is gay. And this is, this established earlier that he's openly gay and she's, she's telling him something and she says, it's hard to say this to a man though. And he says, I'm like a rock wall. Plus when it comes to being gay, I'm in the big leagues. Like, what? <laughs> I'm sure something has been lost in translation. Here. Can
1: you repeat that quote for me?
0: When it comes to being gay, I'm in the big leagues.
1: I just think that that sounds like a person I want to hang out with.
0: You just want to make that your ringtone for me.
1: Yeah, I do. <laughs> just because of your disdain for the use of the phrase big leagues. Like I want, oh, I want everything you say to be about you being. It's in the just, big leagues it's, of a it.
0: weird, it's a weird. It's and and for starters, the to say I'm gay, so it's cool to tell me about your woman stuff. Is just, it's a little strange in the first place, and to a say little presumptive, yeah, yeah okay. right. And then and then to to express that with these exact words when it comes to being gay, I'm in the big leagues. <laughs> like as opposed to what? What are you talking about?
1: Well, they're every. Every, like, gay community, I'm sure, has, like, a minor league system. Right. Right, where people, like, come up. Like, this is, like, useful. We were talking about Dave Hilton. Like, he had to go over to Japan because mm-hmm. he couldn't hang it in the big leagues mm-hmm. in America.
0: Well, some people get drafted right out of high school.
1: What are we talking about? I don't I feel know. like we're in dangerous territory. <laughs>
0: we're in the big leagues. <laughs> so, are... Th- Ask did, ask me a question, then I'm gonna ask you a question, and then we're gonna hit the eject button and get out of here. <laughs> okay,
1: we're gonna get out of one Q84. Did you enjoy the two main characters? Did you like spending time with them? With these I, big books, I find that that is like that is make or break for me.
0: I did. Yes, and any, the thing that the, for any the thing particular this book, reasons. <laughs> well, it's it, it comes back to Murakami's ability to just describe people in a realistic and relatable way like you just you really Mm -hmm. sympathize with them and you really get a sense of what makes them tick you're upset when they're upset you you're just you feel what they feel most of the time um that can break down a little bit when reality gets a little more elastic sure sure but generally yeah you do you enjoy reading the writing you enjoy spending time with these characters what this book makes me want to do is read um like shorter punchier i don't want to say better because this book is critically acclaimed from a lot of a lot of quarters but it makes me want to read more murakami sure which is i think a good a good thing from any author like it's sometimes when you're reading a book you don't get such a strong sense of the author that you want to go and read more stuff that they've done but that's the that is the effect of the of the prose here i think you want more Akami. I do want more Akami. You were smiling. You had that smile for like 30 seconds, and I knew... Oh, man. Okay, cool. You just kept talking. I couldn't say my goof. No, I know you had it loaded up, and I didn't want to keep talking for so long that you couldn't get it out there, because that's <laughs> the worst. <laughs> when you get, like, pun blue balls.
1: <laughs> so, ask me a question. Hit me. It's my turn now.
0: Okay, so Tengo and Aomame have this point in their lives where they sort of break with their families and tried to get away. And I know that you have a pretty close relationship with like most of your, with a lot of your family. I I just wanted to know if there was anything big that your family did that you sort of like broke from or that you wanted to get away from. Ooh. Um, I can, I mean, I can say for my part that I was just, I was driven to be independent like as early as I could possibly be like financially and and mm, mm-hmm. and whatever I don't know and, and then I think religion is also a another thing like we don't we don't talk about yeah that. that's a
1: sticking spot for we you. don't
0: we don't talk about it a ton on the show but like I'm not particularly religious
1: and and you ha- you can trace that back to specific things well yeah, yeah.
0: and just and, and from the religion that we or the the particular church that we went we went to, and the and the things that that church preached. Man, if my family like listens to this podcast, we have kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy about a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, when I started drinking in college, that was the like they that was a big thing. I they that. knew, and I knew, and I knew they knew. Yeah, but you just don't talk about. It. And it's only become it's only within like the last couple of years that I've become comfortable. Even talking them about like the home brewing and stuff that I do, so it's it, interesting. Um,
1: I don't know if there's a particular thing that I was like, I don't want any part of that, because um, I didn't grow up in a in a really strict environment. I kind of just did my thing.
0: I mean, um, and, and there's stuff with like your dad and whatever, but that's not that's not that's, quite what I'm thinking. No, of, it, think. it
1: wasn't like this is a behavior or value that I disagree with. Let me yeah. go my own way. I just I, I think
0: I th- think there's probably more continuity between pre college Craig and po- post college Craig. I guess yeah so, yeah. Because for and, me, like I I you know conservative upbringing, like a lot of a lot of stuff that needed to be got right in my <laughs> in my like belief system and. Sometimes I feel like I've disowned like teenage Andrew because he just had, he he didn't know anything about anything.
1: I, I will say I don't listen to as much metal as I used to. That's Can I break with a version of myself?
0: I think if you're going to break with the version of yourself that listened to metal, that is a great decision.
1: I listened to a lot of metal in middle school and mm. early high school.
0: More like metal school. Am I right? Oh, Bam.
1: Uh. If you want to tell us about the version of yourself that you broke from the alternate reality that used to be you that now you have woken up from, uh, you can write in to OverduePod at gmail.com. I want to thank in particular, um, I believe it is... Zenus
0: who wrote in? Yeah, I believe uh, he is the our, one who wanted us to read this. So.
1: Yeah, he's one of our illustrious Patreon donors, and we got that request through our email, so I, I wanna make sure I mention that. I also want to thank folks who have been reaching out to us on social media. That's facebook and twitter.com slash overdue pod. Uh, I want to thank Lydia and Bookish AF, you know what that stands for. TFB Arielle, Stern, Lucas, Catherine, Tyler, Veronica, Katie, Lindsay, Melissa, Rebecca, Jess, Brittany, Jacqueline, Rachel, Karen, Taylor, Emily, Josh, Amy, Lynn, uh, Sarah, Matt, and Jane. Jane shared with us that she works with a cat named Travis. We were talking about animals with people names. I
0: don't think she works with the cat. She says that the cat lives in the office building where I work. She and the cat are not colleagues.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fair enough uh and jane uh, not jane sorry sarah also shared with us a quote from an episode a long time ago i found it really funny i'm probably going to find a way to share it online if you find funny things that we've said uh please send them to us because we don't because we have any no
0: memory and i'm like that i'm like oh yeah that's pretty funny
1: <laughs> who said that oh weird <laughs> Andrew, if folks wanted to uh, find out more about the show or go listen to that old episode that I told them not to listen to, Mm -hmm. except Chris Mm -hmm. did a really good job, Mm -hmm. uh, where should they go?
0: Uh, They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, RSS, uh, all the ways you can subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe in iTunes especially, we are getting really close to 300 ratings. And Craig loves round numbers, even though they don't last. Nothing gold can stay. Uh, but stay gold pony boy, <laughs> but yeah, if you, if you leave us a rating or a review, it helps us rise in the rankings, helps other people find the show. Um, we got a few responses to, we talked about the possibility of maybe dumping stitcher last week, but we got some responses that, that, you know, people are listening that way and want to keep listening and haven't had some of the problems that we've heard about from other quarters. So I guess as as long as we don't need to do hard work to like keep it going, I think we'll just keep it up.
1: Yeah, we like you guys, the listeners. Yeah, we
0: don't want to inconvenience anybody, so don't don't worry about that. Um up on our website you can also find links to Headgum, our podcast network, Spreaker, our podcast host. Um you can find a link to our Patreon page which you can you can use to financially support the show. A lot of people have been doing that lately and um if you haven't if you donate at the $5 a month tier or above, you get to bump a book up to the top of our list. So if you haven't heard from us and you've donated recently, uh, watch your inbox. We're going to email you or just contact us through one of the methods we mentioned before and we'll we'll get your book on that list. Uh, what else? You
1: can also find a link to our Goodreads group. Goodreads is a cool website that, we, that Andrew and I use intermittently, but there is an Overdue Podcast group that's pretty cool. And I've been trying to start a conversation for each episode. Uh, and there's a pretty good thread going right now about pets and animals in literature. Mm -hmm. there's a lot of good book recommendations actually uh and uh, there was a dinosaur discussion but it got a little weird so i don't want to talk about it thanks thanks chuck tingle but let's just say let's just say
0: thanks chuck tingle
1: thanks chuck tingle um and also on our website you can find out about upcoming books that we're reading i am currently wrapping up our somewhat belated May bonus episode for patron donors and then everyone else a, a few days after, which is Guilt by Association by Marcia Clark. It's a fun, like, legal crime procedural set in L.A. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying it. Okay. So that's what's coming up next.
0: And uh, June's bonus episode uh, is going to be a and a thing. We'll post on Twitter and Facebook To for people to like send us their questions it can be about past episodes it can just be about us it can be about the show it can be if you like want i guess advice and we seem like
1: oh maybe the best people to
0: ask for advice like do that no we'll see if we do that one and that'll be our june bonus episode so yeah watch watch for that um craig do you know what you'll be reading for our next regular episode or have you decided
1: uh I haven't quite decided yet. Okay. I think it might be uh the graphic novel preacher. Okay. And I've just cracked... premiered on AMC, so cool.
0: And I've uh, I just cracked open Jane Eyre by Ooh, people uh, Charlotte have been, Bronte. People have been looking for that yeah, one. Yeah, people have been looking for that. So that'll be that should hopefully be in 2 weeks. It's not as long as 1Q84, so I shouldn't need to like literally go on vacation <laughs> to finish it. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, it means the world to us to hear from you every week this makes it makes things better when they're not great and when things are already great it makes them better too so
1: what did you just say did i don't you know just dip into one q84 and come back yeah just for don't. a second
0: all right everybody uh until next week try to be happy <laughs>
1: That was a HeadGum Podcast. I'm trying to think of uh, any meals that I've cooked that would deserve the Murakami treatment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I'm, I'm coming up a little short. I made some chicken and pork the other day. At the same time, I don't know what I was doing. I was grilling chicken and grilling pork.
0: Wow. That's impressive. It was are a true multitasker. Had, I also
1: had corn on the grill. Ooh, oh, God, I was getting crazy. <laughs> I can't stall anymore. I could start. No, I know that's fine.
0: I'm. (laughs) Okay. Here, this is this is a good one. This is a good, 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 good Murakami metaphor.